As I mentioned earlier, this past week we hosted vacation Bible school here at the church for over 60 children who gathered to learn about God through stories, through music, through crafts, and through games. I have to tell you, as pastor, it was a joy for me to see children smiling and laughing and attentive to learning about God's love for them. There is something about the innocence of children and their willingness to trust and believe that God is indeed good and loves and cares for them. In fact, growing up as a child myself who attended a few Bible schools, I remember adult leaders often leading our group in a chant that every time we would gather and every time that we would eat, they would say it out loud. And I have continued to hear that as I led youth ministry for many years in the life of the church, taking students to uh, conferences and to mission camps. Maybe, just maybe, you're familiar with it. And if you are, I encourage you to join me in it. It goes like this. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Say that with me. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Now, this has always stuck with me, and it's something that I need to be reminded of, especially when life gets hard. You see, the beauty of a childlike faith is that it doesn't question God's goodness. Yet, as we become older and less sheltered, We find our life experiences clashing with the harsh realities of this sinful and broken world. We realize that bad things happen, and we have a tendency to question this basic truth of Scripture, wondering, is God really good? In fact, this is precisely what was preventative of many of coming to faith in God and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is good, then why is there evil in the world? If God is good, then why do some people die so young? If God is good, why does God not eliminate diseases like cancer or Parkinson's or ALS from their existence? These are not the questions that children ask. These are the questions that we ask as adults when we can't make sense out of things that happened around us or to us or to our loved ones. We question God, not his existence, but his goodness. His goodness. As we continue our sermon series today, we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit known as goodness. And Jesus gives us much to think about regarding goodness in Luke's gospel. Everything begins in the context of people bringing their young children to Jesus for him to lay his hands upon them. But his own disciples rebuke them for doing so as if Jesus has more important things to do than to be with kids. In turn, Jesus rebukes them for doing such a thing, and he tells them not to hinder the little children from coming to him. For he says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now soon after this, a certain ruler approaches him with a very important question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. 
Now, I don't know about you, but it's weird to me that Jesus responds this way, right? I mean, the man approaches him with respect and associates him as a good teacher, but Jesus rebukes him for his accolades. Is this ruler trying to butter Jesus up, or is he making a social statement basically saying that he only associates himself with good people? Luke doesn't give us any insight to these questions, but it appears that he's truly seeking sound advice from Jesus regarding his duty to honor God. But rather than answering his question, Jesus wants to set the record straight about the source of goodness. No one is good except for God alone. This isn't a new teaching. The Jewish official knows that God is the source of all goodness. He's familiar with the Psalms that would be recited in the synagogue that say, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Yet Jesus is not so sure that He fully trusts the truth of God's goodness. And so He gets to the heart of the matter. In doing so, He tells him, You know the commandments. And he begins to share a number of them that have to do with loving one's neighbor as yourself. Adultery, murder, stealing, lying, and honoring one's parents. They're all commandments that this man knows that he's kept. And so he tells Jesus, yes, I know them and I have kept them since I was a young child. Now, at this point, he's feeling pretty good about himself, that he's probably passed this test. But Jesus then turns the conversation a bit in a different direction and then says to him this, You still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Luke says when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus blindsides him, doesn't he? Just when the ruler thinks he's on his way to heaven, Jesus shifts to the commandments that have to do with loving God. The commandments of not putting anything before the Lord your God, not making an idol out of anything. Now the truth is, being wealthy was not considered to be a sinful thing. In fact, a wealthy person would have been considered blessed by God. So this man comes to Jesus somewhat confident in himself that he's been doing what is right. God has blessed him greatly with the wealth that he has. He, he has been following the law as he is supposed to, And he has earned a position in a social status of being a ruler of a synagogue. And he has special authority. God has gifted him with all of these things. But Jesus turns his thought processes upside down. You see, his question to Jesus is flawed. He asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? In other words, how good do I have to be? Just tell me what to do, Jesus, and I'll make sure that I take care of it. Now, that puts the emphasis of goodness on us and not on God. That's why he had no problem addressing Jesus as a good teacher. 
And Jesus doesn't get caught up in his own identity as the Son of God, as the good shepherd. Rather, he redirects his attention back to the basics. Only God is good. It's as if Jesus is trying to tell him, you can't be good enough to earn your salvation. So God gives the Israelites, the Jews, the Torah, his law, which is meant to be obeyed, and this law identifies them. God gives it out of his goodness to them to identify and to mark Israel as belonging to him. And it gave them holy direction to live in a way that was pleasing and honoring to the Lord and bore witness to the rest of the world that they were set apart and different. But following the law doesn't provide salvation. It can't be earned. Only God can provide salvation, and the ruler is staring at the very one who will make it possible. And so Jesus is challenging him to trust fully in the goodness of God. And while he tells him to sell everything that he has and to give that money to the poor, this in and of itself is just another good work. That's really not what it's about. Jesus is challenging him to trust in God's goodness by relinquishing his security blanket. He's calling him to let go of worldly idols that are preventing him from fully loving and trusting in God's providence for him. He wants him to give his wealth to the poor, to those who cannot repay him back. You see, the fruit of the Spirit known as goodness is also referred to as generosity. But it's a radical generosity that doesn't expect anything in return. And Jesus knows that by becoming poor and helpless, he'll truly understand to rely on God's goodness. Holding on to his wealth will cripple his dependency on God, and it will cripple him from exhibiting God's goodness to others. But doing as Jesus commands, it will change his lifestyle by making him equal with the poor who are always dependent on God's goodness for their daily bread. In fact, he will become like a child, dependent on his parents to provide every need. This allows him to receive more than he's ever been given, freeing him up to follow Jesus. But Luke tells us that he became very sad at Jesus' response because he was a wealthy man. And he came seeking Jesus' advice but wasn't satisfied with his response. It was way too costly for him. That's why Jesus tells him how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But he's not trying to kick him while he's down, but he's being honest with him about how things like wealth can prevent us from seeking and trusting in God's goodness for our lives. This concerns those who are gathered. And so they ask Jesus the question, well then, who then can be saved? In other words, Jesus, we're all in trouble here. Jesus shares the good news, the good news of the gospel. He says what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, salvation is not dependent upon the ruler's goodness, but upon God's. And Jesus lives into this very message that he gives to the ruler that day. Jesus left the glory of heaven, the riches of the kingdom of God, the worship of all the angels in the glory of heaven, giving up his own power to become one of us. 
not becoming an upper or even a middle-class citizen, he became poor. Poor. And in doing so, he relied upon God's goodness to provide for him, to lead and to guide, and he was obedient to God's law in every way, yet without sin. Even in the midst of his passion, his arrest, his mockery, his torture, and crucifixion, he never doubted the goodness of the Father. Even though he went to hell on our behalf, he never blamed God nor doubted God's love for him. He knew that God would not abandon him in the grave, that God would raise him from the dead. Jesus didn't preach a message to the ruler that he refused to live. And more importantly, he gave all of who he is to everyone, knowing good and well that no one, no one could ever repay him back, much less show gratitude for what he's done. You see, that's called radical goodness, radical generosity. And Jesus taught a parable about that. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the story is about a landowner who hires workers at differing times of the day to go into work in his vineyard. He goes out to the unemployment line and he hires some people in the early morning to come and begin work. And he continues to go back and to go back. And throughout the day he hires them at different times to come. Some even come in just to work maybe an hour or two. And then at the end of the day, he begins with those who worked the least, and he begins to pay them one by one, waiting to pay those who had worked the longest. And the problem is, is that when those who worked the longest received their pay, they received the exact same wage that those who had only worked for an hour received, and they were disgruntled and angry about it. They thought that it was unfair. And they challenged the landowner in what was good. The landowner replied to them, Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And the good news is that the ruler hasn't been ruled out of the kingdom. What's impossible with man is possible with God because salvation isn't dependent on our goodness. It's based on God's alone. And some may think that's unfair. She's not been obedient like I have, or he's not worked as long as I have. But that's God's goodness, his radical generosity that has been graciously given to every single one of us. And you know what? This same radical generosity is meant to be shared by us. The prophet Micah declares to Israel, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah says, God has shown us what is good because goodness comes from God. And Jesus has fulfilled that living it out before our very eyes, and he calls us to follow in his ways. So the question becomes, as people who follow Jesus, what then are we to do? Well, maybe we should think about what's getting in the way of us fully trusting in God's goodness ourselves. But not just to think about it. That's what the ruler did. 
We've got to do something about it. We have to listen to Jesus' words to get rid of those things that prevent us from fully trusting in his goodness, allowing ourselves to be fully dependent upon the God who we say is good at all times. In fact, maybe we need to become more like children and less like adults when it comes to trusting in God's goodness in our lives. In doing so, we are allowing, allowing room for the Spirit of God to bear the fruit of goodness the fruit of generosity in us as we do what is just, that which is right. For we know the difference between what is right and what is wrong because God has given us clarity of what that is through his law, but even more so through his son Jesus, who has shown us what that looks like. And This requires each and every one of us to reflect on how we are living our lives and how we are treating others in our lives. We are also called to show mercy, to love mercy, by extending it to those who need help, those who need grace, those who need forgiveness. Mercy in and of itself is radical generosity, loving everyone, which includes those who are often hard to love. Jesus did this, and thank God he still does this each and every day for us. And this runs contrary to our natural inclinations to ignore or remove ourselves from certain people or to pass judgment or maybe even to harbor grudges. I don't know about you, but as I look at this and this call to live, I know that I can't do this by myself, that I need help. So what do we do? We've got to pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us to respond in godly ways. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul shared with the church in Thessalonica, saying to them, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to pray for one another like Paul did for the church, that together, having experienced the goodness and radical generosity of God, that we too would be intentional in allowing God to move us in ways that display the fruit of his goodness in our lives to others. In doing so, together we bear witness to the simple truth that God is good all the time and that all the time God is good. And you know what? It's not impossible. It's not impossible. Because God has given us His Spirit who is alive and at work within us. And we know for what is impossible with us is very possible with God. In fact, We just have to believe. We have to trust with faith like a child. Friends, may we never forget to trust in God's goodness and to fully live into it that you and I and together as the church, we might live it out together. May it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.